I'm pretty much Carl every week right over there on the right because everyone, good Christian, should be on the right. I know, you're all coming in saying, well, the right is that way, but, you know, it's all about perspective, right? You got to be on the right. Well, it's fun to stand here and take just a gander to see who chose not to come to church when they knew Pastor Bill would not be here. So we're just, uh, we're looking around, judging, being very judgmental about those that are not here. Unfortunately for them, not Pastor Bill and Elizabeth, they get some needed time off. Unfortunately for the people who aren't here, they don't get a chance to look at Maybe the best letter in the New Testament, and perhaps the best chapter in that letter, and perhaps the best 10 verses in that chapter, and uh, maybe one of the most well-known and most cherished verses in that paragraph, in that section. So you are here, we are here. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, the beginning of that chapter this morning. If you have your Bibles... Open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We've started this study for the summer in the book of Ephesians called Known. And that title Known comes from several prayers and several verses throughout the letter where Paul prays specifically in chapters 1 through 3 twice that his audience would know whether it's the power of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the inheritance that we have in God. Paul is intent on us, the audience, knowing that there's, there are things that we need to know about God and in God so that we might do what God calls us to do. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, so I encourage you to look at those first 10 verses. We'll get to them in one moment, but if you've been in a study with me, you know that I like to look at the context of the whole. We need to remember a couple things about Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter, and just like you and I would write a letter, uh, it's written to a group of persons or person particularly. In this case, it's a church. It's a group of people. As we learned a couple weeks ago when Pastor Bill started this series, it's written to a church that the Apostle Paul knew very well. This was not a church that he just visited periodically. It's not a church that he planted through somebody else. This is a church that the Apostle Paul spent time with. It was this church and the leaders in this church in particular that Paul chose to stop, go out of his way to visit before he was going to Jerusalem where he assumed he would be killed. Ephesians and the, the Ephesian people were very special to Paul. And so the message that Paul has for his people is a message that we ought to be very quick to look at, quick to watch, quick to, to take note of. And if you look at the, the whole letter to the, 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 the Ephesians, it's broken out, and many of you know this, it's broken out into two major sections. Chapter 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul is, is telling us what to think about, how to think about God properly, what, what, uh, what doctrines, what truth, what, in, uh, what, uh, what thoughts we should have about who God is and how he's interacted with us in this world. If you look inside chapters 1 to 3 in particular, chapter 1 is really about God's work in Christ. We've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. Chapter 2 is essentially about God's work in us, and chapter 3 is really uh, us individually. God's, in, in chapter 3, it's God's work in us collectively and culturally. And here over the next three weeks, Francois and I will look at chapters 2 and chapter 3, and you'll see how Paul is making this clear point that there is incredible, miraculous unity in the work of God through Christ in the church to unite people who normally would not like each other 
into a new unified body that brings glory and honor to God through what he has done through his son. And it's really a, a fantastic set of chapters. Later on in the summer, we'll look at chapters 4 through 6, which is really where Paul says, let's not talk about what we think about, let's talk about what we should do. In the first three chapters, Paul gives zero commands. In the last three chapters of, of Ephesians, he gives almost 55 commands. The last half of the book is all about, because you think this way, do this way. Because of what you believe, this is how you ought to practice and we are reminded and will re be reminded through this series that the Christian life is not a life of thought. It's a life of transformed life. It's a, it's a life that we have to live in action, word, and deed to God's glory because of what Christ has done in us. And we need to be mindful of this as we're going through this study and every day of our lives, frankly, because we shouldn't just be sitting waiting for glory to come. I appreciate Johnny's prayer where he said, God, we, we want to glorify you and look forward to glorifying you in the future, but we are glorifying you now. We don't have to wait. These are great challenges for us because we tend to look out into the future too much rather than deal with the present. So let's pray together. And we'll open up the passage together. Father in heaven, we are thankful this morning for your goodness. We're thankful, Father, that you've given us this word. We're thankful, Father, that you've given us your spirit, that we can understand the things of you. We're thankful, Lord, that we can open this up for ourselves and we can read it. God, for, the, for us in the room who have been born again, we have the spirit of God in us that we can understand these things fully and not just that, be empowered to live them. And so, God, I, I just thank you for the opportunity we have to come and look at it together. I pray, Father, that you would change us as we read, as we study, as we think. I pray that you'd bring to mind and bring to heart those things that we need to personally deal with, that as we go from this place, we might be changed because of our time here. And we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Whenever I read Paul's letters, I approach them as if Paul is mentoring me. I want Paul to give me instruction. And so I'm asking questions of Paul as I'm reading, and I encourage you to do the same. Paul, what are you telling me to do? Specifically in my life, Paul, what are you telling me to do? And if not, Paul, what are you telling me to think about? And if Paul's not telling me to think about something, Paul, what is it that you want me to be motivated by? What is in my, in my life that I need to be driven by in my decisions? What should inform the way that I think? What should inform the way that I'm, uh, I'm moved to make decisions or moved to obey in some way, shape, or form? And these are the questions that kind of populate my mind as I look through Ephesians. As I mentioned a second ago, the first three chapters have zero commands, so we can take that first question off the list. Paul is not telling us to do anything. He is, however, telling us to think about things, and in this passage particularly, I think he is telling us to be motivated by specific things. The very first command in Ephesians is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, therefore... And Pastor Bill had three reminded us several weeks ago that the therefore is there to remind us what it's there for. And so he says, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so for to me, I think what Paul is trying to do, hold on, my ear's falling off. What Paul is trying to do is remind us that all of these things that we're thinking about in the first three chapters ought to look like walking. Now, when Paul talks about walking, he's not literally talking about foot to foot to foot. He's talking about the course of your life ought to be influenced, it ought to be changed because of the way we think and the things that we are motivated by in the first three chapters. 
So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and the first 10 verses together. Paul writes, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Let's stop for a second. If you remember from last week, chapter 1 is perhaps one of the the most glorious chapters in all of the New Testament. It exalts God. It says three times, we are to, these things are happening to the praise of the glory of his grace. It ends with this incredible exaltation of Christ, that he is the head of all things over all the church. All things are in him. It's very, very grand. Paul begins with, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Is that not the most amazing paragraph that you've ever read? Paul begins by, as he's lifting us up to the glories of heaven, he sucker punches with a graveyard statement. Look at how awesome the Lord Jesus Christ is. And as I'm in this position, I'm mindful of my brothers. I have two older brothers. And they would frequently cause me to stretch, only to do what? Pound me in the stomach, right? You got to get your exposed side so that you can get that, that hit in the side. Paul is almost doing that. Look at the glory of Christ, but you were dead. Paul is giving us three things to consider here as we're looking at these verses. And I think what he wants us to do is he wants us to dwell on these things so that we're motivated to walk in a manner worthy, which is going to come up in in several weeks. And the three things that we need to look at together are your past, his present, and I'm going to make up a word, your or our for futures, for futures. Come back to that. Let's first look at the past, particularly your past. Notice the tense, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. He's talking about past tense. He's talking about your specific past tense. Now let's pause for a second and take a tangent. Some of you may not see your deadness in the past. Some of you may be in your deadness currently. You may be here and you may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You may not know what life looks like. You may have been going to this church for years. You been, been, may, may have been raised in the church, but in, in you, know, you know in your heart right now that there's no life, that there's a deadness, that there's an enslavement, that there's a, a sense of darkness. 
the way Paul wants us to think about that part of our life is as we see what Christ has done for us, that is all in the past. It's former life. You were dead in your trespasses. He, he wants us to think about three things regarding our, our past. First, that you were dead. In a very real way, you were not alive. You were spiritually not alive. He's not talking about before you were born, where literally, physically, and in every sense, there was not a, an existence of you. What Paul is talking about is before that moment where you were born again, where you experienced the new birth that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, you were spiritually dead. There was no life there. It makes me think about one of the big questions that stirs around in my mind with regards to our culture. You know, I'm interested in how uh, media and thoughts and minds kind of connect together. I studied communication in college, and oftentimes we looked at how advertisements communicate and how movies communicate and what comes first, the, 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 the idea or the movie itself, and who is influencing what between our culture and the media and, and what influences our minds and which way is which. And the one question that keeps permeating through my mind is this, as I look back over the course of my decades, why are we so obsessed with zombies? <laughs> zombies, really? Things that are dead, that are alive, and they're walking, but they're not living. They can be brutally treated, but yet they're still moving. They can lose limbs, like in Michael Jackson's Thriller. The arm just falls off, but he still dances. How? And some of you newer, or excuse me, some of you older may be thinking, well, it's just these young kids that are obsessed about these things. The first zombie movie was put out in 1932. And I just did a quick search, and I started counting, and I was well over 100 movies, all about zombies, the dead living. Now, why am I talking about zombies, zombies this morning? If we were to interview a zombie this morning, and we were to talk to them about what their life is like in zombie land, they would say, I'm alive. They may gurgle that, but they're alive. They're walking about, they're existing, they're enjoying things, they're interacting, they're, they're doing all the things that living things do. But all of us on this side of life know that they're dead. Paul's not talking about zombies, but he is talking about the walking dead. He is talking about those who live with no spiritual life. And in the same way that zombies or us are spiritually dead, many people around us are walking spiritually dead. And we don't think in terms of this. We th think in terms of, well, they might be mostly dead or there's little pieces of their life that might be not ideal or maybe they're not living exactly the way the Lord would want them to do. But dead, I mean, come on, really, Paul? They're dead in their trespasses, in sins, they walked in these states of deadness. They were following after the, the course of this world. They were following after the prince of the power of air who's at work in the sons of disobedience. They were, is this really real? And I come to these passages and I, I have to ask myself, do I really believe that this is real? Or do I believe that this is just Paul's perspective of reality? And I've come to believe that the Bible's trustworthy. And when Paul writes about the spiritual state of someone before they embrace Jesus Christ as being dead, as being dead, as being uh, without life, we have to kind of let that settle down and what that means. When you're in the grocery store and you're looking around, waiting in line for the cashier to check your, your order out, 
you're looking at people, most of whom are spiritually dead. Most of whom think they're alive, but they're not. I love what the uh, revelator writes to the church at Sardis. He says, you have a reputation that you are alive, but what? You are dead. And oftentimes we live our lives thinking that we're alive, but inside there's a deadness that you probably know more than I do. And hopefully we see more clearly in the lives of others that aren't alive than we let on at times. The state of our lives in the past is deadness. But not just deadness, enslavement. Paul goes on and he says, um, you once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your mind. The way that you used to live, you were driven by certain things that were not God. They were not Christ. They were not honoring to God. They were, you're driven by things that, that, that lead you away. Now, some of you, like me, are tempted at times to do what? To be driven along by our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, whatever that is inside. And oftentimes, sometimes, oftentimes those, are, those are twisted or perverted or broken somehow. And we need to understand that this ought to be described as what we used to be. We used to be enslaved. We used to be in bondage. We used to be entrapped. The third thing Paul says about your past, not only were you dead, you were enslaved, but you were condemned. You were children of wrath. I think about how opposite that is from the first chapter of Ephesians where he says you have been predestined for adoption as what? as sons, as children of the Lord God himself. Co-heirs with Christ, Paul will say. Opposed to that, opposite of that, on the other side of the fence from that is this description. Our past, pre-Christ, we were dead, we were enslaved, we were condemned. And we need to pause for a second and just kind of let that set into us. Right? Sometimes we race too quickly ahead because we want to get to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We want to know about the grace that has saved us. But Paul takes the time to say, hey, dwell on this for a moment. Your past was dark, despairing, dismal, depressing. There was no life there. There was no hope there. Anybody remember that time? One of the sad realities of my life is that I was born again at a very young age and most of my life was lived without hope. Not because I didn't have Christ, but because I wasn't following him. So some of you even may be Christians and have been forever, but you're still living as if you're dead. It's like, uh, it's like a spiritual weekend at Bernie's movie where you're just carrying this dead corpse around with you all the time, acting like you're alive, but you're not. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But Paul doesn't want us to dwell forever on your past. He wants to look at his present. And his present, play on words, is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. His gift is something to you given, which is life, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us. And how and when? Even when you were dead in your trespasses, God made you alive. So whereas you were dead, you now are alive. But God, 
made you alive in Christ. Now, that's something to rejoice about. That's something to be thankful for. That's something to let really sink in and cause us to be a little bit giddy. We were no longer dead. We are now alive. You are alive in Christ. What I like about this so much is that where were we when God made us alive? Even when you were dead in your trespasses, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. And we need to be reminded by the fact that we did not save ourselves. We, we cannot be a spiritual zombie, dead and alive at the same time. We are dead. God quickens our spirit. He brings us to life. Why? Because of his great mercy. And because of the amazing, immeasurable kindness in grace towards us. God makes us alive, and he doesn't just make us alive. He also raises us up. Paul says, you have been raised with Christ. Verse 6. But not just us. We are raised up with what or with whom? With him. And raised us up with him. And what's he saying? Where is, well, who is him? Him is Jesus. And where is Jesus? Jesus is the right hand of the Father. So in Paul's mind, us being in Christ and Christ being raised and lifted and seated at the right hand of the Father, in Paul's mind, we are in Christ and therefore we are raised with him. And not only raised, but we are seated. And so whereas you and I might think in Christ we are here in this building, worshiping, listening, doing all that we're doing, in Paul's mind, in a very real way, we are in Christ, we have been raised up alive, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So that when God does things to Christ, he is doing it to us, it to us because we're in him somehow. Now, I think Pastor Bill mentioned that there are 140, 150 times that Paul makes this reference that we are in Christ. And I think in Paul's mind, this is a very real, deep truth that if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are actually in him so that when God does things through his favorite son, his only son, he's doing those things to you, not because it's you, but because you're inside him. It's like when we were a kid and we would go to the drive-in movies. I remember my mom's in town this weekend, and we would go to the drive-in movies in the old station wagon, which, well, first of all, all of you over here, there was this time where there was these movies up on a big screen. <laughs> It was really, really big, and it was outside. And what you would do is you would drive in, and you would watch it on a big screen. It was really phenomenal. And uh, oftentimes, they would charge by the car load. And so being a good college student, very smart and savvy, we would pack that car full of people, right? A number of times, don't tell my mom, I was in the trunk <laughs> along with others, Piled in the trunk, why? Because if you get through, you're in the car, and then you're in the movie, but you don't have to pay anything. It's fantastic. Now, I, I hope I don't get in trouble for that. I just uh, regret saying that now. But in a similar but much more glorious way, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, we are in him. And all that the, the Lord Jesus experiences, we experience because we are inside him. It may seem a little bit bizarre to us, but I think that's how Paul really does think this out in his mind. 
that we who are in Christ, by faith, we're in him. He is at the Father's right hand. We are at the Father's right hand with him. And so you can look back in the past and say, well, I was dead. I was enslaved. I was condemned. But now I'm alive. And I'm not here. I'm raised and I'm seated. And if that is true, then how should I walk? I should walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Why? Because it was that gospel that brought me from death to life and put me in Christ so that I might be there rather than here. But I can't just think about that. i got to live out my life here. Paul wants us to look at your past. He wants to look at his present. It's present, present tense, but it's also his gift to us, his present. But thirdly, we need to look at our for futures. okay? It's interesting when you look at the pronouns through this chapter. I like doing that. Paul talks about you, singular, dead, God in Christ to us, and our. So there's this pluralness to this. Paul's very more explicit about the plurality of salvation later. I want to unpack that. I maybe shouldn't have said it that way. It needs to be clarified a little bit more. But there's a, there's a unity. There's a cultural salvation in some way that needs to happen, a unity between diverse people. Talk about that more in chapter 3 particularly. God raised us so that, there's three so that statements in here. I love so that. Because so that tells us what to be, what is the intention of God, right? So when he says these things are happening so that this happens, we want to jump on those so that's because we want to understand what this is all for, right? Our four futures. First, so that in the ages to come, what? So that in the ages to come, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What a great list of prepositional phrases. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The for of God is that he has done all of these things for a display of his grace. God has saved you. God has caused you to come from death to life. God has put you in his son. God has raised you up. He seated you next to him so that he might, in the ages to come, show his amazing grace to you in kindness in Christ Jesus. As a kid, and maybe some of you had a similar experience to me, and as a child, when I remembered salvation, I always thought that it was heaven-focused. That if I just believe in Jesus, I will not go to hell, therefore I will be in heaven. And if I just pray this prayer or raise my hand or do these duties, then I won't, be able to, I won't have to go to hell, I'll be able to go to heaven. And everything was future. There was even a joke going around that, that the gospel was the best fire insurance you can get because it caused you to escape the fires of hell. Now, I think what it did in one sense is it saved, it, it scared a lot of children to believe, not necessarily good motive, but it happened. The other thing that happened was that we tended then to think about the Christian life as something that was to live yet future. And that if I just prayed the prayer, then I would be okay then. But what I think it did is it decimated this understanding that we are to live 
in this age and in the age to come. This is not just God showing his greatness once we get to heaven. It's God showing his greatness right now as we live out in this age and then the next age and then the next age. We need to be reminded that the Christian life needs to be lived out to display his grace because that was the so that that God did it for. He shed his grace on so, uh, so that we would display his grace in the way that we lived in the here and now, not just in the future. Now, I'm very thankful that I get to spend an eternity with the Father. But that eternity has started now. The life that I have is now. The way that I ought to walk is now. Why? I don't know about you, but for me, I'm in Christ. And I'm alive and living currently. And I ought to display his grace to the world around, us, around me. That's how I ought to live my life. So that in the ages to come, beginning with this age, his grace ought to be very evidently clear in the way that I live. Secondly, what Paul says is that it's for his glory, the glory of his name. He says, so that no one may boast. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your, your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. What if I could save myself? What if you could pray hard enough to be saved? What if you could pray hard enough for your loved ones to be saved? What if we could just do enough to get this whole thing handled? Wouldn't that be fantastic? It would certainly give us sense for us to be thankful for ourselves. Because I did this. I accomplished this. This was a challenge that I overcame. But the reality is, when you were saved, if you were saved, you were dead. And God caused you to be alive. And so this is nothing of your own doing. It's not for your own glory. It's really, honestly, not for your own happiness. It's for the glory of the Father. So that no one would boast. Our for future is filled with God showing his glory in and through us. In two weeks, we're going to look at this with regards to the work God has done to bring together the Jews and Gentiles into one body as a, a glory, a demonstration of his manifold wisdom is the word Paul uses. I love that passage. Our for future's need, we need to think about the display of his, his grace, the glory of his name, but the third so that is about the work of our lives. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would do what? Walk in them. It's really great to make something fancy and fantastic and beautiful and exquisite, but if you never use it, what's the use? You know, if you buy something, you put it on the shelf, you're like, oh, isn't that fantastic blender? It just, it blends so wonderfully. I mean, the, the modes, puree and mechanical soft, and man, look at what you can do with this thing. But you never actually pull it in, plug it in, and use it. What's the use? And some of us sit back and say, ah, God saved me. He, oh, man, I'm so thankful. I'm just such a specimen of God's grace and mercy. <laughs> but we don't actually do anything. We don't actually live out the gospel. We don't actually... Uh, expose the glory of his greatness to the way that we live. What's it all for? 
God's intentions for our lives is not just for us to sit back and wait for heaven to come. God's intention for our lives is that we would live out a life using all that he's given us for his glory. Why? Because that's why he did it. He did it so that you might be alive, so that you might be displaying his grace, that you might be exalting his name, but that you might be doing what he's called you to do. Our for future includes his grace, his great name, and our lives transform because we're following after him, who is really the one that ought to receive the glory and the honor that, that is due him in all that we do. I know I started by saying Paul has no commands, but what are we to do with all of this? And I want us to chew on these three things as we're wrapping up today. Paul models for us a, a, an interest in reflection, Paul says you ought to reflect on what you used to be. Now, I hope, I pray, I desire for each of you to be able to say with a clear conscience that this deadness is really past. It's not current. And if you're here this morning and you're, you're still dead, God's amazing grace has extended to you through the person of Jesus Christ. We believe that's what the Bible has revealed to us. That in the state of deadness, we can come to him, we say, God, I believe, I trust, I don't understand it all, but I believe that you have made a way in Jesus Christ, help me. And what God says is, immediately you are alive. And you are raised and you are seated. And life begins. And you're no longer walking around as a zombie-like state. Rather, you're walking around in life seeing clearly and understanding more deeply and feeling a sense of joy in life. Why? Because you're no longer dead. You're not stagnant. You're alive. And all of that can happen this morning. All of this can happen right now. You don't even have to do anything except, God, I believe. Help me. Help me understand this. Connect me with people that will draw me closer but we as Christians ought to reflect on the, on the past. And some of you who are saved may say, well, why in the world, why would you spend your time looking back? Why would you think back about those dark and dismal days? Because oftentimes when we look back, we realize how far we've come. But you have to be careful not to dwell so much in the past because sometimes dwelling in the past turns to despair because you see the darkness and you get stuck into it, you get lost into it. Sometimes dwelling in the past causes you to desire the past. Remember what the Egyptians did. They were enslaved. Literally, their life was up, going, making bricks, being beaten if they slowed down, and then going to bed. And as they're out in the wilderness free, what are they doing? They're thinking back, ah, oh, remember those days? Torture, hard work. Ah, oh, those were awesome. Moses, what are you doing leading us? They were dwelling in the past, and it was causing a desire. Now, you ought not to do that. But you ought to dwell in the past thinking about what God has delivered you from so that you could do what is appropriate, and that is rejoice. I am no longer what I was. I am becoming, maybe not as quickly as I want to, but I am becoming something better. I'm becoming closer to what God wants me to be. And you and I, like everyone, is slowly processed day after day moving towards Christ-likeness which is God's ultimate desire for all of us. But that sense of reflecting backwards ought to erupt in a sense of rejoicing. And then we need to remind each other 
about what life is like going forward. And this is where community comes in. If you're not connected with someone that can remind you about these things, you're going you're gonna to fall. You're going to get lost. You're going to wander off course. You're just going to go into no man's land. And even though you're not a zombie, you're going to begin living like them. Why? Because we need each other to remind ourselves of what really matters in life. You need those people in your life that can look you in the eye and say, you're not being very smart here. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to, you need to guard yourself in some way, shape, or form. You need somebody to pick you up and lift you up and walk you forward. We need to go from this place with a sense of healthy reflection backwards. We need to rejoice in the fact that we once walked in those things and we're not currently walking in those things. And we need to remind ourselves, not just today, not just this week, not just next week, every week, after week, after month, after year, after decade, until someday we're going to stand before the Father and we're not going to have to worry about any of this. And all of that life that has been put in us is going to be erupting in something we can't even describe because we can't measure it. It's immeasurable. That's the day we're living for. Therefore, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel with which you've been called. Let's pray. Father, you have done amazing things in us. Your grace is amazing. That even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, you caused us to be alive, you raised us, you seated us with him, so that in the ages to come, you might lavish your grace on us all the more. God, remind us today, this week, that we are your workmanship, that we are created in Christ, not just to sit and wait for heaven, but we are to live as your workmanship, works that you've prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. I pray, God, that these words would be alive in us, that they'd be real to us, that they wouldn't just be uh, Awana Scripture memory verses, but they would, be, they would be words that change us and guide us and motivate us and push us on to bring more and more glory to you. God, we desire you to be glorified. Father, I pray for those this morning that are dead. They know it. Their loved ones next to them may know it. But I pray, God, that you would show them that they're dead. Show them that they're lifeless, that they're empty, that they need more. And I pray, God, that you would direct their spirits to look to you, the one who gives life. I pray, God, even this morning, that they would be moved to come forward or talk to someone. Take a step in one direction towards you so that they might too be brought to life. God, I thank you that you're not finished with us, that you desire more for us and that you are working continually in us. We look forward to great things as we serve you forward. I pray that you change us, God, that as we go from this place today, we might bring the utmost glory to your name in all that we do. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.